today we have the honor of having Dr. Mary Bowden back on our podcast. A lot has happened since the last time she was on our podcast. She is a um, ear, nose, throat doctor down in Houston, Texas, and she just happened to start treating COVID patients because no one else would in her area, and she wanted to do what a doctor does and 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 help patients. So she got into that, and um, after that, she. Um, kind of became a celebrity out of happenstance, not not that she wanted to be. And she's going to tell a story about how um, she had a patient that wasn't, that was a denied treatment in a hospital. Um, and it's just a, it's a, it's an incredible story, almost an unbelievable story. But if you guys have been following us for the last two years or just following this whole narrative for the last two years, you probably won't be surprised. So um, without that, I'm going to introduce Dr. Bowden to our show. Dr. Bowden, welcome back to our show. Hi, thanks for having me. So, yeah. So just go ahead and start from the beginning. Um, tell us about how this, how you started treating, co- you're an ENT physician, and I, there's going to be some questions, I'm sure, that are going to come up. You've probably already defended these questions. Um, first of all, as a ear, nose, throat doctor, what gives you the expertise to treat COVID patients? So I see a lot of respiratory tract infections as an ENT, and I had patients coming to me you know, with viral infections, right? And prior to COVID, I was working with a lab called Microgen DX. It does PCR testing for bacteria and uh, fungus, fungi, and I was using them for my patients with chronic sinusitis. So they came out with a saliva test for COVID, a PCR saliva test, and I was able to get people tested when testing was difficult to come by. Um, You may have remembered early on, LabCorp just got slammed. And results were taking two weeks to come back. And then they ran out of supplies and they were rationing who could get tested. The saliva test was perfect because you didn't need any special supplies. You just needed a sterile cup to spit in. And my practice is I purposely located it in a strip mall because I hate the whole parking garage scenario when you go to the doctor. So it's easy with the saliva test because patients could just come to the door, grab a cup, go back to their car, spit in the cup and leave it outside um, our office door. And so it's contact free. And then we were able to get results back in 24 to 48 hours. So my practice just exploded with COVID because we were able to provide this test when testing was hard to come by. And then I started having patients telling me that their primary care doctors would not see them, that they were, you know, they test positive for COVID and we'd be like, oh, go see your primary care doctor. Well, as you know, um, many prim- primary care doctors either completely shut their doors or would only do telemedicine. And even if they did tell- do telemedicine, told the patients to go home and basically wait till you can't breathe and then go to the emergency room. So at first I started by doing breathing treatments in people's cars. Um, so I'd take the nebulizer machines, a portable nebulizer machine to people's cars and give them breathing treatments. And then I just kept researching more and more things that could be done for these people to try to keep them from going to the emergency room or going to the hospital and, you know, basically adapted the FLCCC's protocol, uh, also used a lot of monoclonal antibodies. Um, so it just, it was kind of this gradual evolution of events. That, and, and then I'll say one more thing. I, I've now seen patients that should be going to the hospital, but won't. So they're coming in with oxygen levels in the low 80s. And 
I mean, it's been interesting because prior to that, I would have said, okay, you know, go straight to the emergency room. We will call the ambulance for you. Um, but I've been able to manage them as outpatients just because they refuse to do anything else. And so you basically give them IV steroids, IV antibiotics, IV vitamins, ivermectin, breathing treatments, and bring them back daily or every 48 hours as needed. And they've actually done great. I haven't had any anybody ended, end up in the hospital who has come in with that situation. Um, so it's just, it's been very yeah, interesting. That, that's yeah, that's um, it, it, yeah, and that's a great story and just a reminder that, you know, I mean, you are you are a doctor and you're supposed to take care of patients. And you know, Janet can have some comments on this, but Janet was so upset when doctors were just closing their doors and refusing to treat patients. Janet, can you comment on that? I can because we were inundated with calls too. Like, who do I go to? Who do I see? And not only are we talking about uh, clients that, you know, like you mentioned, they absolutely refuse to be seen. They would have rather died in their own house without any medical treatment if if they were going to have to walk in the doors to a hospital because they felt like if they were going to the hospital, that that meant they were going to the morgue and they were going to die alone. And I don't know how many calls we took and fielded, but it was amazing. I've never seen this in all the years that I've practiced in pharmacy where I've had to encourage people to actually seek help because they were afraid that if they went through those doors, they were never coming back out. And it's sad because um, the feeling that I'm getting is that we're losing trust in our system. Uh is that how you are perceiving and why your practice just flew? Uh, definitely. I have patients all the time saying, I need a new primary care doctor. I can't trust my primary care doctor based on how they reacted during COVID. And I get it. I mean, your primary care doctor is supposed to be your advocate. And a lot of primary care doctors are you know, badgering their patients about the vaccine, um, not having an open mind about off-label use of, you know, uh, medications and, um, or, you know, just not, not being very helpful or, uh, you know, doing the minimum, the bare minimum. Um, so I hear that a lot. Yes. So speaking of medications and we are specifically not streaming on YouTube today because YouTube censors us every time we talk about COVID or ivermectin. So please, Dr. Bowden, do not be afraid to talk about ivermectin because we want to know about it. And we want to know about the specific case that you had where you were treating, refused, the hospital refused you to let treat, let you treat a patient um, with ivermectin. Is that correct? Yes. And that's sort of how I started my path to notoriety because <laughs> I had a, a the wife of a patient, and he's in Dallas. Um, he has been in the hospital for a month and intubated for a month, and she wanted to try ivermectin. Um, and the, the hospital refused, and so she sued the hospital and asked me to testify. So I, I testified, and I testified in conjunction with uh, Senator Bob Hall, who's a Texas senator, who was the person that came up with the right to try law in Texas. So it was, you know, he's the expert on this legal matter. 
and we actually won and the hospital uh, was ordered to grant me temporary privileges. And then I would do get the order. I would submit the order for ivermectin and I would hire my own nurse because they wouldn't use any of their nurses, hire my own nurse to administer the ivermectin to the patient. So first they, um, they denied my privileges, my request for privileges. Um, even though I've, spotless record. They just, that was, that was the way that they were getting around it. And then they appealed the lawsuit. And unfortunately, um, we didn't even, we didn't learn about the appeal. We thought we had the go ahead to give the ivermectin. I, I can't remember the sequence, but anyway, we, I had a nurse ready to give the ivermectin. She showed up at the hospital and they had the police escort her out of the hospital. I mean, just unbelievable. And then they appealed and they won on the appeal. So the patient never got the ivermectin. He's still in the hospital. He, he did get transferred to a um, sort of a rehab facility. And he is finally off the ventilator. He does have a trach, um, but he's off the ventilator and he just passed his swallowing study. So he will finally be able to take some medications that he wasn't able to take previously. So, but yeah, it's, it's, awful. He's seen his kids. He has five kids, I believe. He's seen them one time this, this entire time because of the hospital rules about wow. So do you have any comparable patients that you've was in the same situation as him and you treated with ivermectin and you kept him out of the hospital? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I had um, one patient is a friend of mine's brother. And he was, I didn't know about this until he was already, he'd gotten into the hospital and he was about, they weren't sure he was on the verge of maybe needing to go to the intensive care unit the next day. They weren't, he was on the verge and she snuck ivermectin into him. She snuck it into a Q-tip box because, you know, she couldn't go in the room and it was like this undercover little thing. He took the ivermectin and the next day he went home. So yeah, stories like that I hear a lot. Wow. Now, it doesn't work in everybody as no medication works in everybody, right? So, um, yeah. but I have enough clinical examples of it working that, and I have no clinical examples of it harming anybody. Um, I have more issues with antibiotics than I do with ivermectin in terms of side effects. That, yeah, it's... Um, yeah, I just have no doubt that what I'm doing is helping the patients. Janet, you have a comment about ivermectin? or I do. Yeah. So um, if you're listening today, I'm sure you've heard of ivermectin, but just a little background. Um, when it first came out onto the market, I believe Merck was the company that mm -hmm. made it. It actually ended up winning a Nobel Prize for treating people with parasites. And it has been on the market and used by people throughout the world on, on a huge scale, I believe billions, billions if, I, yep. if I can recall the exact number, I don't, but it has um, been toted for an off-label use, which is part of medical practice. Um, it happens every single day that medications come to the forefront and doctors and colleagues talk to one another and, and find out what is working for a particular treatment. Um, our experience at our pharmacy was our health department actually sent out notices that we were supposed to report people to the health board or to the, the pharmacy um, 
licensing agency if a prescriber was prescribing this medication. So what happens is a rabbit hole because the public is hearing that there is um, treatments available to them and their providers are not offering that to them. So where do we go? Well, we order off the internet. We go to the feed store. We go to our friend's house. We, and to me, I feel that I've taken away the opportunity because we, we didn't touch it. We left it alone just partly because of what we do. We focus on hormones. But to me, I think we took away the right of the privilege of a provider and their patient to decide what treatment works best for them. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I, uh, I have a survey going out online um, looking at this issue, and it's about 20 to 25 percent of people found their medications without a provider and they just, yep. you know, ordered it online or, and, you know, there's no, they don't list the reason, but it, it, you know, only 14% use their primary care doctor. And I think we know why, right? Because no one's willing to actually prescribe it. Uh, but yeah, it's, people are having to take their healthcare, you know, take prescription drugs and find it on their own because they can't find a doctor that will do it. Well, it's amazing that we treat something like ivermectin like contraband. I mean, you had a patient that had to sneak it into a hospital. I mean, that that's like contraband or people, you know, literally have to treat it like contraband, which is just unbelievable. I never thought that we would get to this in 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 medicine. But in some ways, I'm just not surprised. If you look at the the way the government has tried to control medicine for the last 20 plus years, we really shouldn't be that surprised. Yeah, I know, but still, it's not like it's we're sneaking in heroin or even Vicodin. I mean, it's 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 a safe drug, and you know that patient that was in the that's in the hospital for six months um, after we lost the lawsuit, the nursing staff wrapped up his feeding tube with multiple layers of linens, and they basically secured it so that no one could you know accidentally sneak something in there. I mean, that's stuff like that it's very scary um yeah i hear multiple people um are i hear this a lot from family members a lot of people in the hospital their family members will rub ivermectin on them topically um, without the nursing nursing staff knowing about it and then about my lawsuit so methodist hospital in november came after me publicly they suspended my privileges based on a couple of tweets that I sent. One was that ivermectin works, and the other one is that vaccine mandates are wrong. And in response, they suspended my privileges, and they did it through um, social media. They tweeted about it, and they told a reporter at the Houston Chronicle, and I actually found out about my privileges being suspended from the reporter. Um, a lot of people think I was fired, but I was not on their payroll. I only had privileges there as a backup plan. As an EMT, I do um, a lot of outpatient surgeries, and you need to have a place to put your patients in if there's some sort of complication. And I had not needed to use Methodist, so I'd never stepped foot in there. So our relationship was very loose, um, but they they basically wanted to make an example out of me. Um, so basically in response to that, the Houston Methodist is a nonprofit 
And all nonprofits, at least in Texas, are required to disclose all their financial information to the public if they've if it's requested. So uh, I made a formal request. I actually made two formal requests, and um, those requests were completely ignored. So uh, we decided to uh, take legal action to get that information. Um, their response thus far has been a formal. Uh, Formal, no, we will not give you any information. So the next step is to depose the CEO, Mark Boom, um, and then go from there. But that that will take probably a couple of weeks to get on the schedule. How do we, you know, now that the COVID narrative is kind of going away, Dr. Bowden, um, you know, nothing nothing better than a war to, to make something like that go away. Um, how do we hold these people accountable? I mean, we can't let them forget about this. Right. Well, the nice thing is now doctors like myself have time to fight it because when things have been things have been so hectic, it's been hard to, you know, do much on the on the side. So, um, I mean, I I get a couple emails a week now from lawyers who are looking to take action and like me to help help them do that. Um, So I I think, you know, it's it's going to get worse before it gets better for these people. Um, and I don't, I mean, I think they're, COVID has touched everyone and it's not, it's something we can all relate to. And I think even people, it doesn't matter. I mean, for me, I was politically agnostic prior to this pandemic. I mean, I really, I actually just didn't like politics. I stayed out of it. I thought it's just, and now, and now, right. now I get it. And now I'm, I'm fired up, but <laughs> uh, I think a lot of people are fired up now. Um, so I don't think it's going to go away. Um, I think it's, I think justice will be served in the end. Um, so do you think the hospitals, I, I, I know, you know, you've got an active lawsuit going on with hospitals and you kind of are trying to expose them and want to want them to know how much they benefited off this pandemic. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Are hospitals really making money on COVID? Oh, of course. Yes. Right. Um, and I'm not going to be able to remember the numbers off the top of my head, but I know they get tests, they get money for every positive COVID test. So if you're coming in for a car wreck, they're going to test you for COVID because they get a bonus if if you te- happen to test positive. Um, they get a bonus if you're on a ventilator. They get a bonus if you get remdesivir. They get a bonus if you die, um, if you have COVID. So there's no financial incentive to keep you out of the hospital. There's all the financial incentive in the world to keep you in the hospital. Do you think that's one of the reasons why the treatments have been suppressed like ivermectin? Yeah. I mean, the other thing that happens in these hospitals is they do research for the drug companies. And so there's this conflict of interest where, you know, if there's if they're doing research for Pfizer, um, then they've got a, fin- a strong financial ties to Pfizer. They're probably getting a lot of money from Pfizer and they're not going to give a, a medication that could deter people from getting the vaccine if, if they're very cozy with Pfizer, um, things like that. I mean, the, uh, the research company, I mean, the pharmaceutical companies are so enmeshed with academic physicians and teaching hospitals that it's um, the conflicts of interests are, are ripe. 
Well, I think even, and not just teaching hospitals, but I just know even local clinics, you know, in my small town mm -hmm. um, that are involved in vaccine trials. And, mm -hmm. you know, when they're not given patients proper informed consent, consent, and they're not really telling them that they're involved. They're not telling them that they're in, that this is a, a trial, and you know they they can or cannot take it. And they're basically the CEO of the of the group is basically saying why people need to get vaccinated. That's a big conflict of interest. And I think, I th I think it. I don't like to say medical malpractice. I don't know what it would be, but it definitely does not shine a good light on a doctor that tells patients that. Right, right. I mean, that's a basic tenet of being a physician is informed consent. And that has been um, shoved to the side, as has HIPAA, right? I mean, HIPAA was a huge, a huge deal, right? And now all of a sudden, everybody's entitled to your medical information. If I write an exemption letter for somebody, somehow they're entitled to know exactly why they're exempt. Um, it's, it's bizarre. Yeah, I never really thought we would get here. Um, but I think that what we need to do is we need to keep fighting this and not let it go away. And when this whole thing started with lockdowns and masks, I could just see it getting worse and worse. And it, and it has. And, you know, we hear now that, um, you know, lockdowns might be um, in the future again because there's a new COVID variant. Well, there's always going to be variants of a virus, right? So, should we just lock the lock the place down again? Well, I, I don't think the lockdowns were very effective and it definitely helped destroy a lot of people's lives. Um, so what are your comments about moving forward with COVID-19? Should we even worry about COVID-19 now? Is there enough people that have been either vaccinated, whether it's effective or not, or enough people that have reached herd immunity, natural immunity, that we should even worry about COVID-19? Mm, well... I mean, there is, there are hints that it's going on in China and the UK, right? And I mean, ho I, hopefully more people are realize now that the vaccine is not going to protect them um, and they need to have find other ways um, and be prepared in other ways. And I don't think, I don't think sweeping lockdowns are, I mean, maybe they'll happen in your state, but I don't think they'll happen in my state, hopefully. I mean, I think it just depends on where you live and what the mindset is there. Uh, but I think there's been, you know, a little bit of growth in how we deal with COVID. I mean, a little bit of growth in some parts of the country, but yeah, whether I, I'm not... I mean, I'm afraid based on what's happening in China and the UK that we, we haven't seen the last of COVID. Yeah, what's interesting to me is that, you know, when is we going to call it, when are we going to stop calling it COVID-19? Because if it mutates enough, it's really not COVID-19 anymore, right? I mean, our bodies have been dealing with coronaviruses for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know when we're going to get over the COVID-19 narrative. Um, that's what's kind of you know, just uh, well, you know, puzzle, puzzles me. Yeah, and it's interesting. Delta and Omicron were different different diseases. And, you know, Omicron didn't cause the smell and taste issues that Delta did, which suggests it's, you know, not, it's just a different virus. So, I, right. you know, who knows? Hopefully it'll just get weaker and weaker strains uh, as we go forward.
Yeah. So what's the future look like for you? Are, are you going to change your practice at all? Are you still going to stick to mostly ENT stuff or what, what's the future for you? Um, you know, I will see, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, I'm hiring another ENT to come help me. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll see. I mean, I think if COVID comes back, I'll, I'll continue to help people with COVID. I'd love to get a primary care doctor to come work with me because I have a lot of patients that are looking for a like-minded primary care doctor. Um, I'm trying to open a micro hospital with um, a critical care doctor who is like-minded to help people, um, you know, get over their fear of going to the hospital. Um, it'll be more like a acute respiratory infectious place where you can come for, you know, a day or so to get your uh, lungs back in shape. Um, and then, you know, I still, I'll spend part of my time fighting this fight and trying to get, get the truth out. Yeah. Well, I think you're doing a good job and, and thank you for standing up. I mean, a lot of doctors just won't stand up, even if they believe what's going on is wrong. Um, most of them are employed physicians mm -hmm. and they know if they stand up, they will probably either get fired or, um, you know, even worse. I mean, get, you know, um, a, a complaint against their license, which has happened to a lot of doctors that have stood up, haven't had complaints in their license 20 years in practice, and all of a sudden they start treating COVID patients and there's a complaint against their license. So, um, it, yeah, it's important for, for doctors to stand up and just take charge of, I think this was just a little piece of what's been happening for the last 20 plus years in medicine, and that doctors just need to take charge again. Mm -hmm. um, and because most doctors 25, 30 years ago were in practice for themselves, they could stand up and they could treat patients the way they wanted mm -hmm. instead of a hospital administrator telling them how to treat a patient. You have a comment on that? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's something like 80% of doctors are employed by a hospital or a private equity group. And, you know, they basically what happens, insurance companies were squeezing doctors so hard that in order to get any kind of uh, bargaining power with them, they banded together into big groups. And most of these big groups are either owned by hospitals or they're owned by private equity groups. And, um, you know, they get better bargaining power with the insurance companies, but they lose their autonomy. All of a sudden they're an employee and they have to follow whatever the boss hands down as, you know, the standard of care. Um, so, you know, it's probably fine when you're dealing with sinusitis where, you know, it's not, if you're a little bit not, you know, what everybody else does, it probably go unnoticed. But with this pandemic, it's, it's been a, it's brought those issues to a head and into the spotlight. And I think that's good. I think the whole direct primary care um, movement will grow from this because, uh, direct primary care is, you know, like myself, I don't have any third party ties to, I'm not beholden to insurance companies. I'm not beholden to the government. I'm not beholden to a hospital. I'm only beholden to my patients and that's what direct primary care is all about. Um, so I, I think that will helpfully blossom that movement. I love it. I love it. And we, the government, no matter how hard they try, cannot stop the free market. And that's what I love um, is that the free market always wins. And, you know, it's because of um, people like you and doctors like you in medicine that are making the free market win. Thank you, Dr. Bowden, for being on today. And thank you for fighting for medical liberty and patient choice. Um, we need more doctors like you. And we are going to do our best to 
spread the truth from doctors like you. So thank you for being on our show, Dr. Bowden. Thank you, Sean. It's good to see you. Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Thank you for tuning in.